Okay, Stephen, welcome to the dirt. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for being here. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and why we should all lean in. Great start. Uh, well, my background is quite diverse and uh, lengthy, as you can see. Uh, my background is actually, I started a long time ago in software and went from software to consumer packaged goods, where I worked for some of the biggest brands out there, L'Oreal and, and uh, uh, a division of uh, P&G, and then started my own agency about uh, over 26 years ago. And uh, we work uh, in the B2B area, and we work with uh, well-known brands that are sold in grocery stores. That's basically our focus is grocery. And, uh, and so we know a lot of things about B2B. We know a lot about marketing and, um, and sort of that experience of working in all of these different areas, I think, uh, has, has made for a really uh, interesting ride. And uh, hopefully uh, the people that are listening in today will find that as well. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about those areas. What are those areas? Currently? Yes. Yeah, Currently. Okay, well, we work, uh, we work with uh, a lot of uh, uh, fresh food, uh, sustainable products. Uh, it feels good for that. You know, we work with uh, uh, companies like the Haas Avocado Board. We work with uh, California Strawberries. We work with uh, Watermelon Board. We work with all of those are just some. And then we work for other groups as well. But uh, those are the ones that... Uh, has just sort of naturally occurred. When I started the agency, we were not so focused on uh, fresh foods and, uh, and items like that. But slowly but surely, we kept getting more and more calls and sort of organically, no pun intended, mm -hmm. we, uh, we went off in that direction. And today, that's the majority of our business. Uh, we do a lot of work in research and, uh, and data analytics. And then we take that information and we convert that into uh, creative marketed marketing messages and uh, and creative layout and things like that. So so we go the entire stream. We want to find out what's going on in the marketplace, how somebody's product fits into the marketplace, and then how we can make them stand out so that their brand rises to the top and they become what we call the category captain. Hmm. Love that language. So the um, the data data is so important, right, to everybody, no matter what industry you're in, no matter what you do. So talk talk to us a little bit about how you guys, why you lead with data, um, I guess, and then, you know, how you've become the foremost experts in that category. Yeah, thanks. Well, it's it's such a change. You know, when I started the, uh, uh, the company those many years ago, I literally was saying, we've got to start working with data. We've got to start working with uh, research. And I literally had people laughing at me, telling me, go away. There's no need for that. Well, today, yeah. obviously, there is a need for that. So, uh, so the things that, that I think have made us so successful and the, and the leader that, that we are in our area is that we take very complex information, complex data sets, we work with uh, syndicated data sets that are sometimes 30 million rows long. And we compress that and make it simple to understand. Because the last thing we want to do is to use uh, data speak, just like I encourage marketers not to use marketing speak when you're talking to a client. You need mm -hmm. to make it simple to understand. So we take that information and we convert it into charts that are graphically appealing. We take messaging that is simple to understand so that our research, our data can be passed along to everyone in an organization. And no one has to be a marketer or a data expert. They can all see what's going on and how it applies to their area of the business. And, uh, and so when we started doing that, then we'd have clients say, well, how do we convert this into a marketing message? And I'd say, well, we'll get uh, we'll get some creatives in here to help out. And uh, and then finally, I said, why am I getting creatives in here to help out on a one by one basis? We should probably bring some creatives in house. Yeah. So that's what we started doing. 
So we be, that's how we became sort of an agency that does everything from research, data analytics, marketing messaging, branding, strategy, everything in between. Uh, uh, if, if a client wants it, we can pretty much do it. So given that you started off in tech and have a lot of big enterprise experience and now bringing some of that, you know, down market, um, yeah. when you, when you look at, um, the way companies, uh, are doing business and you wait, you look at the way that you're helping them. Have you already started to develop some sort of technology that facilitates the way you do business or are you always working with third-party vendors for technology components uh well i would say you know for the for some of the nuts and bolts pieces you we don't want to reinvent the wheel so uh, we use uh, databases that already exist that we didn't have to invent but what we really are strong at is is taking the information that we get out of let's say a, a large database and converting that through our own methodologies through our own strategies and algorithms uh in, in, into methodologies that are unique to us and that no one has and uh and it's always interesting because people always say well how can we do that and i just say spend 25 years developing the technology and you'll be there uh, so it's, that's, it. that's, it. <laughs> that's all it takes. So, so the big stuff, databases and, uh, you know, we're obviously not going to be in, working to develop our own AI engine or anything like that, but, uh, how it's being used, how we're bending it and pushing it into place for our, the needs of our clients. That's really where our strength shines. Understanding the, the need that the client has and how do we take these components and push them together? What are the what are the biggest obstacles that you face when you're when you're maybe a client that's not as call it data forward or tech forward as as your methodology speaks to like is there a lot of lift in terms of education and and onboarding or like what are you finding um in new client acquisition I guess You know it's 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 interesting because uh Oftentimes, we'll have a, a, a client or a potential client call us and they'll say, hey, listen, uh, we really are interested in finding out more about data and research and things like that uh, and how we can use that in our marketing programs. So our goal is really to suss out how literate are they? Because some, sometimes they will say, oh, yeah, we, we know all about this, but they really don't. Yeah. They don't know how to use it. And that's one of the early lessons that, that we had in our company was uh, people said, oh, we must have this. Our, cl our client asked for it or my boss asked for it. But then when you start talking to them, you realize they know they want something, but they don't know how they're going to use it. They don't know how to apply it to their business. And so we have to then figure that out with them and basically not get over their heads, so to speak. And the products we deliver are different. If someone is highly sophisticated in their, in their business, we'll give them a highly sophisticated uh, uh, work. But uh, if the deliverables aren't simple enough for those that don't understand, then mm -hmm. they will take it in, they'll look at it and say, well, we don't know what we're supposed to do with this. And that's the end of the relationship. So, uh, so, so knowing where your client's at on the spectrum of understanding is key. And I think that's true for marketing and everything else as well. So there's, um, you know, there's this one process that a lot of services businesses will go through, um, that hard lessons learned, right. Um, it's mm -hmm. called RFP process. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah. You know, I know that you guys have built a solid book, both direct through direct channels and, and other channels and, and also through RFPs, but life wasn't always so easy in terms of what RFPs to respond to and, you know, what ones not to. Uh, I, that's something we haven't really talked about a lot on this show that you've got a lot of knowledge on. So I'm just going to leave it there and, and see what you've got to say on RFP process. Wow. You know, um, it's lessons that were hard. <laughs> they RFP process is like a minefield. Um, 
fortunately, as you learn and you start building these lessons up, um, it, it things get better. And yeah. I, I always wish that uh, when I started out, I had somebody that, or I wish there was a podcast back then that I could listen to and uh, say, oh, well, that's what I have to do. There was none of that. So um, thanks for I the plug, just, Steve. Appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, so there's, um, there's so much I can share. I'll just start sharing some ideas with, with you and, and uh, uh, your visitors here. Uh, one of the things that, that was very beneficial for us was to create a system, uh, a system of how uh, an RFP routes through our company. Because before, you know, a salesperson would go out and then they'd start writing the RFP and they go, all right, we're ready to give it to the client. And then the marketing group would say, well, wait, this doesn't include us. And the finance people say, what the heck are you doing? This isn't ready. We have to, you know, figure out what the, the profit is on this. So the first thing is, I think you need to create a system. Who touches the RFP? And at what point do does it move forward or get axed? Because as you said a few seconds ago, what not to reply to is just as important as what to reply to. Now it's so much easier for us. We'll get RFPs and we go, hey, this is great. We really thank you, but we're not the right uh, group for this. So, um, you know, let us know if you have anything else. But um, as we go through this system, there are things that, that we actually started uh, outlining that needed to be discovered before we could completely uh, complete an RFP on behalf of a client. So some of the things we said are, ask these questions. Say to the client, what does the finished product look like to you? Go ahead, tell me what it looks like. And oftentimes you'll, you'll say, well, I don't know, that's why we're coming to you. Well, what does that tell you? It tells you that they haven't really thought very much uh, about the project that they're asking for. How mm -hmm. hard is it going to be to give them a product that they're going to be satisfied with if they can't even uh, define what they're looking for? So what does the project look like to you is a very important question, and you should keep probing that question. Other questions are, who's the decision maker in this process? Who's the decision maker? Now, this happens all the time. They will go, well, I'm the decision maker. It's me. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I, I had an instance where the guy says, I'm the decision maker. It's up to me. I'm the guy. We revised the RFP four times, four times to make him happy. And then he comes back and says, well, I gave it to my boss and they didn't want to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's a fun one. <laughs> right? So if they're the decision maker, they need to be able to define the process. Um, here's the hardest one. What's your budget for the project? Now, they never want to tell you that. Oh, I'm not going to tell you what my budget is. Mm -hmm. so, so you have to be able to pull that out of them. And I'll tell you, this came from a, an incident. Everything came from an incident. Um, we had a, a, a client who basically said, I want, and this is the quote, the Mercedes-Benz of, of projects done here. I want this to be top flight, the best. Okay, what's your budget? Just put the Mercedes-Benz in there. So we came back with like about a $900,000 quote. Yeah. And they went, what? <laughs> I was thinking more like $15,000. And my response was, oh, really? You buy a lot of Mercedes-Benz for $15,000? So now what we do is I'll say, all right, don't tell me what the number is. Tell me what the range is. And then, well, we don't have a range. Well, is it, I'll throw a number out. Is it $500,000? And they'll look at, you can see the look in their face. Well, no, it's, it's not 500. That's, that's high. Okay. Is it $5? Well, no, it's not $5. It's got to be a lot more than that. All right. So now we're starting to get, build our range. Yeah. So now let's get to something that you feel comfortable with because having us come up with ideas and spending your money doesn't work. You have to help us through the process. In fact, 
we have a, a phrase, and that is client engagement equals agency success. And this is true through the RFP process, and it's true once you've landed a client. I've seen agencies fail because the client is not engaged. And if they're not engaged in the RFP process, they're probably not going to be very engaged once you've landed them. And as we all know, there's nothing more expensive than the very first projects you do for a client. They're highly expensive because you're learning, you're changing, you're fixing. It's only after you've had them for a year or more that you can start to understand what they're doing and you can start to take some shortcuts to uh, complete the projects on their behalf and start to earn some money. So these are the things that we're trying to find out all through the RFP process. The other thing you need to say to yourself is how realistic is what they're asking for? Is do they have a dream? You know, or do they understand marketing? Do they understand uh, the data that they're looking for, the research that they're looking for, or or is it just some sort of myth in their head, or that their boss said we need to do it? And that's a big one, right? My boss said we need to do it. So I think these are the things that we really want to think about and and uh, really focus on and uh, and in the RFP process when you return your scope of work of what you're going to do uh, and I learned this the hard way it's important not just to place in your scope what you will do but what you won't do what's not included in the RFP and we actually put in there changes equal more money on your behalf. It's like building a house, right? You've designed the house, the contractor's given you a price, and then you go, well, listen, I want to move the kitchen out another 30 feet. Mm -hmm. uh, it costs more money. So you need to have all of that sort of lined up. Um, the other thing we always are very careful of is uh, scope creep. Um, that's how you lose money really quick is all of a sudden the client starts saying, well, what if we did this and what if we did that? Well, that's the questions you should have asked before we we completed the RFP on your behalf. Um, so that's why uh, if you don't, you should be using change orders. And those change orders should say, you've requested a change. Here's exactly what you've requested. This is what we're going to do, but this is the cost of that change. A couple of those, and clients understand really quickly that uh, they can't just keep pushing the envelope. You know, it's you have to make money too. your business has to make money. Your agency has to make money. If it doesn't, then it's no good for anybody. Um, some other things we found, and then I'll let you ask any questions. Some yeah. other things we found that I think are really interesting is we've developed a project and the client will say, this is what we want you to do. And they'll be very specific about it. And that's good. You want that. You want that specificity. Then you develop the project and you give it to them. And then somebody else in the organization says, well, why didn't you think about this? And it's something totally different. And then the client comes back and says, wow, other people in the organization are saying, why didn't you think about that? And then they look at you like it's your fault. Yeah. Why didn't you think about that? Like, like you're supposed to know every in and out of this organization you're working with on your very first project, right? So you have to be prepared to push back on that. And uh, one of the things I think we've been very successful at is we're not afraid to push back, but we are also very polite in the way we push back. But I think pushing back is uh, is is key. So let's so let's now walk, ask. Let's walk through one of those pushback scenarios. Um, yeah. Because you know these these examples are so helpful. I think for the audience, like what. Give me an example of a time when you needed to push back and how you were able to push back. Yeah, uh, we were working on a creative project. I thought this was fun. We're working on this creative project and it was a, there was an ad and there was some materials and stuff. And so we gave them, uh, we gave the client some, this is what we think should be done. And, it, and this is the way it should look. And this, we kind of laid out why and the reasoning and the strategy. And they go, well, we really want to do something slightly different. And so in-house, they took what we had done and they manipulated it and changed it. And then proudly came back and said, what do you think? Hmm. And I said, 
Well, I think the same thing as I told you before. I don't think that works. And they looked and they said, what? I go, and then I went through all the strategy again that we had shared with them. Here's why it doesn't work. You're missing these points here. You're hitting too hard on one point, not enough on these other ones. And so, yeah, do it. But I think you're missing the boat. I think you're cheating yourself out of a, a better product. I said, it doesn't have to be our idea, but what you've done here is just simply not the best. And they said, we'd forgotten what you said, and those are good points. So, okay, let's change it back. Yeah, sometimes all it needs is a little little push and shove, a little reminder of the history there, right? <laughs> That's um, right. Because we are human at the end of the day. That's right. Um, I, ha I had one time, I'll never forget this. This is... Uh, a long time ago, and I'll tell you how long ago it was. We were developing an ad for a, a client, and they were in a. It was sort of like they came to us and said, "We're in a real hurry. We just want to get an idea for an ad." So we had a, a sketch artist on 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 staff. So we did this quick pencil drawing, and uh, and like that same day, we went back and we said, "We're thinking of something like this, but you know, it'll be all it'll be all done. This is just a, a rough." And they go. So you're going to make a whole ad out of pencil? <laughs> <laughs> no. And yeah. that's when you learn if the client has vision or not. <laughs> or if everything is very literal. And that's another thing that's important to know about that particular client. <laughs> are there are there any times when, uh, when Fusion bid for a client and later realized it wasn't the right fit? Oh, yeah. Yes. You know, but unfortunately, sometimes that's a year later mm -hmm. uh, when you realize that uh, you have a client that will say, we really are looking for help. We really want your brains. We really want your strategy. But that's not really what they want. They just want a pair of hands to do the work for them, for their ideas. And, uh, and I've learned that the hard way because literally one time we did this creative project and then the client changed it all and and went to print with it and started mm -hmm. making a big deal out of it. And I literally had to make phone calls to people and say, uh, if anybody asks you who did this, please don't give them our name. Uh, we didn't do this. The client did it and just use our hands to mm -hmm. create the project. And uh, it's it's an embarrassing piece of work. And, uh, and that's when we resign that client, uh, because your work is what you have to rely on to build your business. And if you start putting out junk just for the sake of making a few pennies, uh, you're in big trouble. And I know when you start a company, you're, you want to make every penny you can when you start. Yeah, anything for a buck, AFB. That's right. That's the, that's the motto when you on day one, but it's it's easy for that to turn into, you know, uh, no niche at all because you continue taking on everything. The sun. That's right. That's right. So when you um when you look at lessons learned from that experience or others, are there, is there anything that the audience can learn from in terms of like how to not select a client like that, or is is there anything you do different? how to, you know, identify those types of clients in advance? Yeah, that's really comes from the fact of, of that first question I mentioned is what does the finished project look like to you? You know, if, if they can go in a couple different directions with that, they can become overly specific. I see this and it's got a little green dot in the corner and then it's got a picture of my daughter here and, and we're going to use my boss or my face as the face on the ad, all those kinds of things, then, then you know you're just a pair of hands. On the other hand, if you ask what does it look like to you and they go, oh, I don't know, you're the expert, then you know they haven't thought about it. And if they haven't thought about it, how are you going to satisfy them? Because they're going to start thinking about it after you start the project and they may end up in a different place. So we oftentimes will go to a client and say, we can't bid on this until you give us a little more specificity. Your, your four or five paragraphs in your RFP aren't enough to give us help. We're going to ask you more questions. We want to meet with you. Um, we want to go face to face with you. 
those are the kinds of things. Um, and then pretty soon you learn who not to turn to. And then, of course, it's easy when people give you project they, they want you to bid on that have nothing to do with your business at all. Nothing. Mm -hmm. Like uh, I've had clients. We don't do websites. We don't design websites. Clients will say, oh, I've been looking at your website and we really would like you to design our website. I go, yeah. well, if you were looking at my website, you'd see that we don't do websites. <laughs> There's not a or mention of we, a website. Or maybe we it. hired somebody to do the website for us, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's exactly what we did. Yeah. We said, here's our key messages we want on our site. Put it together. Make make the SEO work, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you um when you look at the way that you're building, just to to switch gears here for a second, you know you're sure. building. You've been building for almost thirty years, right? Um, yeah. and, and longer than that if you include all the all the experience and expertise you learned along the way. Um, yeah. And um, you uh, you know, you've you've accomplished a lot. You've done um a lot of great work over the years. And a lot of times when I'm talking to someone like you, we're talking exit strategy, right? We're talking like, how do I hand this off to the next generation? Or, um, you know, more often than that, how do I get a nice payday at the end of this so I can go enjoy the next, right? Um, oh, right. And uh, when we talked, when we had that conversation, you talked about kind of a different path that you're undergoing. Um, and, uh, you know, I call it the annuity strategy, right? So, you know, let's- yeah. Let's let talk to the audience. What what is what is the annuity strategy, and um, and how are you using that to to drive wealth for your future? Yeah. Well, let me back up a little bit, and I'll get to that in a second. You know. Yeah. If you have a business like mine, you have a couple of options, right? You can uh, you can sell it, uh, grab the funds, and exit. You can sell it to employees grab whatever funds there are over a payment uh, period, grab them some money and exit. But I happen to love marketing and I love what I do and I love working with clients. However, as you get older, you don't like it as much as you did when you were a lot younger. <laughs> so, so using the annuity strategy, you can work a couple of days a week working with clients. And, and what it basically means is you start mentoring staff to take over. You start mentoring somebody to take over your position in the company, to start working with finance, to start working with sales, to start working with marketing and research, to start doing all of the things that, that I was doing. And that's a, that's a lengthy process, right? Because you have to train them not only on what to do, but how to do it, and the overall culture of the company, because you can't sort of uh, uh, mess with that. Uh, mm -hmm. The culture of the company is, is so important. And so the annuity strategy is basically to get those people to take over and then to take um, funds out of the company every year to sort of take... Um, um, an annuity out of the company and have other people run the company. And for me to basically just stay in place, but for a limited time. And, and we have another saying when it's time to meet new clients sometimes or potential new clients, we, um, we say it's time for some gray hair and that's, Oh, there we go. <laughs> it's time for some gray hair. And I've got plenty of it. And so it really helps us, you know, because we can go in, meet with a potential new client. We have youth and enthusiasm. And then we've got experience and we've got uh, uh, expertise and, um, and values and everything else. So, so that's my goal is to never sell the company, but to partly exit and have these talented younger people uh, take over and uh, to run the day-to-day -day business and to allow me to meet with clients and perhaps play golf every once in a while with them and uh, take them to lunch. And uh, and a lot of times, even with the, the people that are taking over now, 
they'll say, well, here's a situation we haven't encountered before. What would you do? And I love that. Well, here's what I would do. How do you, uh, how do you prepare for and execute on that type of exit strategy? Right. Cause I mean, every, every exit requires preparation. This is a little bit different of a, is a personal exit, maybe not a exit event, but a, right. a gradual, right. A gradual exit event. How do you, what's, what does the preparation look like for those that are interested in that type of exit? Yeah, it, it's, it's long. <laughs> it takes a lot of thought, right? It takes a lot more thought to do this than to just say, ah, let's sell it. Give me my price and I'm done. So, uh, b- but even if you do that, you know, if you're, if you love your employees, you need to take care of them and you have to figure out how you're going to take care of them. You can't just sort of say, well, there's a new owner. Good luck. Uh, at least I would never do that. Yeah. Uh, uh, so for me, it's start identifying people when you hire them to come into the company. Where can this person go? What are their talents? What do I see in them? Are they uh, a, basically somebody that just does one thing over and over again? Are they multidimensional? Are they social? Because once you get into a leadership position, uh, people discount the sometimes uh, the need for, for social skills, but that's like the number one thing you can have is good social skills, especially when you're dealing with clients. Mm-hmm. So I start looking at these people and start identifying them in my mind. Then you start putting together a pathway for them to grow. This person's going to go this way. This person's going to go that way. And you're mentoring them through the entire process. And you start off not by micromanaging them, but by giving hints all the way along. And I'll, I'll just say some really simple things that may seem dumb, but... Um, we sort of have a, a philosophy that if a client writes to you in the morning, you should respond by the end of the day. If a client writes you at 5.30 or 6 o'clock at night, we say don't respond to the client. I don't want anybody writing at 8 or 10 o'clock at night because you're tired, you're hungry, and you're just writing something. And the client could say, well, that was Kurt, you know. So, uh, so respond the next morning. So those are the kinds of things that you can share with staff to say, this is how we do things here. This is how we behave. This is how we continue the culture of the company. Um, when we're talking to the client, we always want to be positive. We never want to say they have a bad idea. We always say, well, have you ever thought about, that's a great idea, but have you ever thought about this? So those are the things I think that, that, that we've put in place and and raised the the level of each person that works in the company. Uh, we've raised their level of thinking, how they deal with clients, how they deal with projects. And then if they have something rather complex, at first we'll say, well, I want you to share that complex situation with me. I want to see what I would do. And then I'll share that with them. I'll say, what would you do first? And then, then I'll tell you what I would do. And then what happens is pretty soon you start getting in, in tune with them and they start understanding you and you start understanding them. Then it's a matter of letting go because everybody has their own personal style and I don't want to step on anybody's personal style as long as everything's being covered correctly. And so that's so you, sort of how you do it. Are, are you looking to, to home grow an eventual CEO or have more of a executive leadership ownership without a CEO, you know, how, how are, what does the future look like? Yeah. Well, the, the future is we're, we're, uh, grooming a president right now and, uh, very soon. And, uh, and then I will still be involved mostly on the financial side and on, uh, not to control things because these people are already working with finance and they're already coming out with, uh, Scopes of work that have uh, and bids that have numbers in them for this is what this is going to cost for the client. And at first, I was overseeing all of that. Now I I trust that that finance and these people want the company to make money because it's been ingrained in them that if 
the company doesn't make money, guess what? There's no money for anybody else. Yeah. So the, this has worked very well. And uh, my goal is to, like I said, play a little golf, meet with the clients, help out occasionally, see, make sure the company's making money, even though they've done a great job. And uh, yeah, so this, is, this has been in the process for quite a while now. This isn't sort of a, uh, uh, gee, I just started thinking about this last year. This has been several years I've been thinking about this. Uh, yeah. And it all just stems back for the, from the fact that I didn't want to step away. I, I have so many friends that were in much, oh, I, I have a good friend who ran a very well-known company that you would recognize if I told you the name. And this guy was traveling all over the world as, as the president of this company. He retired. And within six months, he was telling me, oh, I, oof, I wish I didn't have to retire. His company had a policy. He says, I wish I didn't have to retire. I miss it so much. And when you listen to people talk like that, uh, it, I've always learned from other people. Uh, just to give you a quick example, when I was when I was 18, uh, I had this this Volkswagen, and these these old guys like my age now would say, um, "Oh, that's a cool Volkswagen." I'd say, "Yeah, it's my very first car," and they would say, "Oh, I wish I had my first car." Oh, I really wish I had my first car. And it was an old Mustang or something. They really loved it. So I listened. And I still have that Volkswagen. So <laughs> I think you got to listen to people. And when people tell you retirement isn't what it's cracked up to be, especially now, you know, in the 1930s and 40s, when people were retired, they lived about six months and then they died. Now we're living 20, 25 years, 30 years. What are we going to do for all that time? I mean, I can't garden <laughs> for 30 years. <laughs> so I want to stay active. I want to stay engaged. Yes, not to the degree I have been, but I want to stay engaged. And that's what it's all about. So when you look at your team and, and what's made them um, be able to uh, take on so much ownership from you, so much uh -huh. you know autonomy to run the business, um, are we talking, you know, uh, all millennials, all Gen Z, you know, all boomers, you know, a collection of all sorts. Like, what is the team mission perspective, um, yeah. and and how has that you know worked towards your uh, what you're looking to achieve? Yeah, it's it's interesting. My uh, it's a it's a mixture. It's definitely a mixture. Um, uh, I'm obviously a, a boomer. Uh, hey, boomer. Uh, <laughs> Uh, my finance person is a boomer, uh, but my marketing person isn't a boomer, uh, and um, they're millennials. Uh, my head of research is a millennial, and then from there, I've got even younger people. So we range an entire gamut, uh, and it's all based on on talent more than anything else, you know. And the thing. And, and it works because we all have different levels of experience and, and we're compatible. And we're compatible because we all have common interests. And uh, when we hire, we hire. Uh, I, I really don't hire for talent, for quote unquote talent. I hire for personality mm -hmm. because it's much easier to train somebody how to do something new than it is to say, listen, you're a really depressing person. Could you just perk it up a little bit and smile once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we hire for personality for a fit in the company. And then we train them if we need to, if they've got the, the wherewithal. And, and I think the other thing that that's made this a cohesive team is that uh, we really are looking for people who uh, can work together. They're like-minded and they and they have an entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, you know, uh, there's there are people that just want stability. So they want to. They think I'll go to work for a big company and I'll be stable. Mm -hmm. Well, that could have been true many years ago, but it's not the same today. And then you have other people, especially after the pandemic. Oh, well, I just want to be entrepreneurial. I want to stay home. I want to do my thing. But there's no stability there. So 
we've tried to combine the two. You can be entrepreneurial. It's your project. Show us what you can do. And you have the stability of the company to help you. Because uh, like all companies, there's ebb and flow. We have busy times and slow times. And, uh, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to uh, make people happy in their position. How have you seen the, um, the workforce mindset shift over the years at Fusion, especially with the rise of millennial Gen Z workforce and, you know, kind of the polarization of the employer-employee relationship in a lot of ways, or evolution of, I should say? Yeah, it, it's... For us, it really hasn't changed a whole lot. For us. I mean, yes, you're 100% right. I mean... You know, before it was, and you still see some of this, you've got to be in the office at eight o'clock and you're going to stay here till five. And I've never been a big believer in that. From the very beginning, we would say to, to, to uh, uh, our employees, do you want to start at eight, nine, 10? When do you want to start? You know, but we expect the work to be done. So, and some employees would say, I can't get the work done because the office, there's too much activity going on. So I'd say, we'll stay home and finish the work, finish the project. So even before uh, the pandemic came, we all had these little uh, iPads on our desks where you could see everybody working. Um, and then you would just push their picture and you could have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. So people could be home and we could still talk to them through like we're, we're doing here. Um, uh, and this is really before Zoom became a, a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, so then all through the pandemic, we used that. And now we're in a hybrid situation. You know, we are, uh, we have an office and we go in and we have meetings and people go in and have meetings and they do things, but people work from home and we do like we're doing here today. Um, and I think for all ages, whether they're boomers or, uh, or uh, Gen Z or Gen X or millennials, everybody wants to enjoy their life and, uh, Nobody wants to think that, you know, they worked for 50 years and then they retired and enjoyed the last 10 years. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So I, I think if more employers would sort of take that attitude, I think they'd find they would have long-term employees. We have employees that have worked with us for 15, 20, 25 years. Wow. And, uh, and then we have new people that come on because we keep expanding. But, uh, and then we do fun things, you know, we close down between the holidays and everybody just gets some time off and that's in addition to their vacation. So we, we try to make it appealing. What do you think the future of fusion looks like in, uh, just say five years from a, from a workforce <laughs> culture perspective? Well, gosh, in five years, I think we're going to see probably more people working out of their house more. Uh, I think we're going to see probably greater productivity out of everybody. And I say that because with the rise of AI, I think that will help people become more productive. We're already starting to use some of that. <clears throat> and mm -hmm. even if, you know... Even for simple things, you know, if you wanted to write a blog, you can go and say, hey, you know, write a blog on this and it will write it for you. And we don't use it for that, but we use it for, oh, that's a good outline of how to approach the blog. Yeah. And then we write based on the outline that AI gave us, not that we're using its words and its thoughts. So simple things like that, you know, all of a sudden you're not spending 20 minutes trying to figure out how am I going to. What order am I going to put all this stuff in? Yeah. So even simple things like that. What do you What do you think about um, like what are you guys doing on the on the AI front or on the, just on the technology efficiency front? We can call it um, currently. Any any anything uh, over the last few years that you guys have implemented? We're always exploring technology. Uh, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that I started off in software. So that was like in the 1980s. And I've yeah. always been, I mean, I've had my first computer was like 1983. So, and if you look back there, that computer is from like 1983. Wow. And, 
and uh, there's are the disk drives <laughs> for them. Yeah, that looks like uh, one of the computers I played Oregon Trail on as a kid. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, and over further is an old Macintosh, and so there's all kinds of. So I'm really into technology. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, we are constantly using technology to improve what we do. Uh, we're always looking for a benefit. You know, what's the per, uh, what's the benefit of it? We don't incorporate technology just for the sake of it. But uh, in terms of our data analytics, we're using uh, uh, algorithm, unique algorithms and things like that. We're, we're using uh, Microsoft Power Tools, which are simple things, but uh, these are all things that you can incorporate. So we're always looking for that. Uh, even simple, crazy things, right? I'm crazy, not crazy. Uh, converting over from a from a standard phone line to an internet phone line, yeah. So that you can uh, find out who's calling you, and you can use it to to you know capture information, things like that. All of those things throughout. That's all the stuff we're looking at. We're constantly scanning what's going on, what improvements. Something unique that I just found out about that somebody told me about is if you're having problems with spam. Uh, phone calls on your on your phone. There's now an AI app that you can go to that will answer those spam phone calls and talk to the person. So <laughs> that's awesome. And basically, and actually what, blow them off. You know what's that one called? <laughs> I don't know. I have to find out. I just found out about this yesterday. <laughs> that's cool. but but I'm gonna buy that. Whatever it is, I got to go online and buy it. You know because that is like. Okay, there's just one more incident of of technology being useful. Mm -hmm. So, all right. Well, to close us off here, um, I've got five quick hit questions about you and your growth um, as a human, as a founder, as a business owner. Um, okay. And the the first one is, um, what is the top metric or KPI that you are relentlessly focused on? Profitability. It's a good one. All right. What is a top <laughs> tip for growth stage founders like yourself? Say that again. What is the a what? Top, a top tip for growth stage founders and business owners like yourself. Focus on the client, not on yourself. Focus mm -hmm. on the people that you can make happy. Don't worry about making yourself happy and you will be happy. Another expression. I always talk about our expressions. If our clients are successful, we'll be successful. And mm -hmm. clients, I first. believe that a hundred percent. What is a, a favorite book or podcast that has helped you to grow? Do you want me to say your podcast? You can only plug us <laughs> once in a show, or people are going to think I'm paying you, Stephen. <laughs> You're not. <laughs> oh boy! All right, we got a different problem. <laughs> uh, favorite book. Uh, or podcast, I, you know, I don't know that I have a favorite book or podcast because they've all been so beneficial. And as I've gone through my career, there have been different books uh, that have touched me in that moment. But when I look back, I go, eh, yeah. <laughs> now, because that's like part of just, it's part of doing business now. It's not unique or revolutionary like it was when I first read it. So I, I would say my favorite book is the next one that's going to inspire me and keep me motivated. Uh, and and after I've read that one, then it's going to be the next one that's going to inspire me or keep me motivated. Has there been one recently that has, that has left you super motivated? Oh, gosh, I, I've read so many recently and I've seen and I've seen so many podcasts. Um, I can't name one off the top of my head. I feel like uh, right. Sarah Palin. <laughs> you can come in the comments later and leave it. How about that? Okay, there you All go. Right. Um, what is a piece of advice that you often say that counters what one would consider traditional wisdom? That counters traditional wisdom. Oh my goodness, that is an interesting question. Um, well, I guess, you know, 
one of the things I said earlier was focus on profitability, and I do focus on profitability. And that seems like the natural thing to focus on, right? You but sometimes, <laughs> because everything comes from there, right? Yeah. That's, the, that's, the, that's the gasoline to keep the car moving. Right. Or the electricity to keep the car moving. Right. Um, but sometimes you can't be focused on that. Sometimes that's the wrong thing to focus on. Sometimes it's best to focus on a project that is going to expand your capabilities, going to challenge you mentally um, and, and your experience levels, and you're going to gain other things from it. Um, that are not as tangible as profit. And, uh, and so I would say when those things arise, when those opportunities arise, put the common wisdom of profitability out the window for a little bit and focus on making the client happy and challenging yourself. So yeah. I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah, it's terrific. It's terrific. All right. Last one here. Uh, what is going to be the title of your autobiography? It's been a long road. <laughs> uh, with five O's. With five O's. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, actually, it would be something, seriously, it would be something like, it's been a fun ride. I have enjoyed, I've, uh, you know, I tell my kids all the time, I say, if I die, if I die suddenly, don't feel bad because I have had so much fun. I've had fun in life. I've had fun in business. I've made so many great acquaintances. I've seen so many things and done so many wonderful things that, yeah, it's been a fun ride. Oh, man. I just, I'm pumped on life. And I just wish it could go on for forever, but obviously it can't. And maybe that's why I try to gather all the experiences I can uh, because I love it. That's a great way to, to end this year. So you, you've given a, ton to our listeners today, Stephen. So I always allow for a little bit of self-promotion here at the end. How can those help? How, how can those listening help you out? Oh, gosh, if you have any ideas uh, that that amplify anything that I've said here today, I would love to hear those because, right, we're always learning. You never know it all. And uh, and I'm still learning. I'm still asking other people what, how, how they do things. How do they do an RFP? How do they deal with their clients? Uh, how are they dealing with re retirement? Um, yeah. So I would say contact me. Uh, it's Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N, at GoWithFusion.com. GoWithFusion.com. And write me. And uh, share any information, or if you think I'm wrong about something, or I should look at something in a different manner, I would love it. That's a good one that I don't get often to close us off. So, well, well said. Thank you, Stephen, for joining us on the dirt, and thank you, Orchid Black, for making this show possible. And thank you to all of you listening in. Uh, keep dialing in, and if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Stephen Muro is the man. All right. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. Thank you.